This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 150. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Quick reminder, the SNN Network Canada virtual event is coming up on January 6th and 7th, 2021 with lead sponsor Small Cap Discoveries, one of the leading Canadian small micro and nano cap newsletters. We have teamed up to highlight our neighbors to the north, Canada. We have our initial speakers up there right now on our website, uh, which is canada.snn.network. And we actually just added a few more speakers uh, over the last day or so. So be sure to go and check them out. Uh, Many more speakers that we'll be announcing, as well as our presenting company lineup, which is, uh, I'm I'm really excited to share that with you all. So uh, I'm I'm really pumped on this event that we have, really that we're putting together for a while now. And be sure to register for the event at Canada. Dot SNN dot network to join us for an incredible microcap event to kick off 2021. Again, that's Canada.SNN.network and click the register button. I'll see you there. This week on the SNN Podcast Network, uh, on In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fury, our hosts welcome guest Mark Vonderwell, better known as Googie, on the Microcap Club. Uh, he joined Gary and Eric via telephone to chat about what else? War Stories. So you can check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Eric Barroian. Eric is a full-time investor based in Paris whose handle is at E-B-O-R-O-I-A-N on Twitter. Uh, I was introduced to Eric by one of the best microcap investors in the game right now, Meredith Brill, at Lockstock Barrel on Twitter. That's L-O-C-K-S-T-O-C-K-B-A-R-R-L. Uh, it was funny because I, I honestly was expecting to uh, be speaking with someone from France with a French accent. So it was a little surprising to get on the Zoom and hear Eric's uh, Chicago accent. But uh, all jokes aside, I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Eric as we dive deep into his investing process. And if there's any takeaway from our chat that you will hear, With investing, be creative, think outside the box, and use that damn imagination of yours. Let's go. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 150 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Eric Barroian.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me right now, my guest for today is Eric Barroian. Eric, I'm so stoked to have you on today, man. How you doing? Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So, Eric, just, uh, you know, look, I wanted to say his last name really quickly because I had just gotten it. But uh, Eric is a full-time investor. He's based in Paris. Uh, he's got a really awesome background that we're going to get into today. And we're going to give, uh, from, the, from the jump, we're going to give a shout out to Meredith. Thank you so much for connecting us. Uh, I, I think anybody who who follows uh, Meredith Brill on Twitter, at MBB, uh, she's, she's one of the, the best, most talented investors out there. So, uh, Eric, you know, you came highly recommended. You really, you better not disappoint right now. <laughs> well, I hope not. Thanks a lot, Meredith. I, I really appreciate, you know, the, the recommendation. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. All right, man. Well, Eric, look, how we always start each interview is I, I really would love to get your background. You know, where, where did your passion for investing begin? Sure. Um, so I guess my parents are both American. I was born in Chicago and we moved to France when I was six. So, um, I guess a big part of the investing sort of journey starts with my parents because my, my mother's an accountant. So she's sort of very rational, very detail oriented, you know, very meticulous. My father works in the luxury goods industry and it is sort of much more on the creative and imaginative side. And, and so, you know, when we were, um, when we were younger, they, they talked about business all the time. Uh, they, they both invest in the stock market. They both have sort of investment portfolios. You know, my mother is sort of on the uh, like uh, consumer staples, sort of very durable businesses that, you know, she's held for a long time. And my father is more, you know, highly concentrated, sort of two, three positions in his portfolio and in and, and sort of industry that he knows really well, uh, also very long term. And so, you know, sort of watching that, uh, I guess, influenced me. And then when I was sort of 16, 17, a couple of friends started investing in the stock market. And so we started, you know, talking stocks and businesses. And that's sort of, you know, how I got into it initially. And then from there, uh, you know, I, I think I did what a lot of people did. Is, you know, I read a lot of books, uh, made a lot of mistakes, and, and then, you know, progressively decided that I might want to do this, you know, as a job. And I think I, I got sort of two pieces of advice from my parents, which I think were, were good pieces of advice. And the first was that, you know, investing is about more than just numbers. And so, you know, it, it might be a good idea to have an education that sort of is more wide ranging and looks at different aspects of business and not just finance. And so, you know, I studied business management at undergrad and then, you know, uh, actually economic sociology at grad school. And that was more sort of I was very interested in, in sort of crowd behavior uh, in psychology. And it allowed me to sort of blend those two things together. And then the second piece of advice was if you're going to analyze companies for a living, you might want to work for one first. So. Yeah, I spent sort of two, three years working at Vivendi um, uh, on, on the music side, uh, which is an exciting time because, you know, it, it was sort of, uh, I guess, about almost 15 years ago now. And it was right as the industry was starting to shift towards streaming. It was the very early days of, of Spotify. Um, and so I, I, I spent some time there, uh, then got an MBA and joined the South side, spent almost three years there and then transitioned to the buy side. So. I guess that's sort of the, the short background. Very good. Very good. I mean, look, we can go down many different rabbit holes right now, but uh, first things first, you know, what was that, what was that initial experience for you that you're like, all right, I'm hooked. I'm in, let's go. Well, it was a good experience in the sense that I initially had some success. Uh, 
and I think if maybe I hadn't had the initial success, I might not have been as passionate about it. Um, in the end, so, you know, this is like 2001, 2002, 2003. I was, you know, I got very interested in sort of the traditional value approach. Uh, I, I, I bought a lot of stocks that had, you know, uh, that, that looked cheap, that had, you know, emerging market exposure, industrial exposure. They all did very well. Uh, I thought that, you know, it was because of the analysis that I'd done. Uh, and in the end, when 2007, 2008 came around, I, I, I sort of learned the hard way that I was actually just um, playing the same theme in different ways. Uh, and, and none of the performance was stock picking. And most of it was just, you know, that was a period when, you know, it sort of inflation was rising, inflation, uh, interest rates were rising, uh, you know, value was outperforming. Uh, emerging markets were outperforming, and it just so happens that those are the types of stocks that I held, and I didn't have very much balance, and you know, uh, made a lot of mistakes, and, and I, I felt it pretty hard in 2008, 2009. So, you know, I, I think it helped me, you know, get the initial passion, but also learn not to be too confident and and not to be too one-sided in my approach, and or too, I guess, ideological or or, uh, or dogmatic in the way that I approach investing. So that those are sort of the first few years. <laughs> Very cool. So then I also have to ask about, you know, those, those dinner table conversations with your parents talking about investing. I mean, that must've been some of the most fun stuff. And remember, I mean, you, you laid out two things that you remember specifically that piece of advice that your parents gave you. So clearly during those, those talks, I mean, that, that, that just had a huge impact on you. I mean, that, that's not rocket science to even revolutionary to really say right now, but I mean, I, what were those dinner table conversations like, you know, what companies were they looking at? I mean, uh, you know, this is a microcap show, so I can't help but ask. I mean, were any microcaps talked about? <laughs> There were no microcaps. It was more sort of like <laughs> the Costco's and the Unilever's on one side, and then the sort of uh, LVMH and Hermes on the other side, and and it was really just talking about the different businesses and and what makes them tick and what makes them different, and discussing the management teams. And there was just very you know varied conversations. But um, you know, I guess at the time I didn't realize it, but what they have in in common is that um, it's. I think it's about sort of their temperament and the very long-term view and the ability to stay calm under pressure and volatility. Um, you know, those sort of things, you know, that, that maybe they discussed, but I didn't really internalize until I went through it myself, uh, I, I guess. Um, but, you know, it, it's, yeah, I guess kind of lucky to have that kind of situation, you know, initially. Very cool. All right. So let's dive right in. You know, because we got a lot to cover with your investing process and some of your tweet threads that you put out there that I found just fascinating. And, you know, I mean, one of the questions eventually we're going to be talking about your passion for guitar and jazz guitar, because that might be <laughs> that might be an hour on on its own because I, I grew up as a jazz drummer. So uh, that that'll be pretty. Fun. Cool. But OK, but but we'll get we'll get there. We're, that's our that's our cliffhanger for everybody to listen to all the good stuff before, <laughs> that. you know, but uh, <laughs> let's let's dive right in. You know, what, what would you say is your investing process and what would you say makes that process? as different from some of your peers out there there's a lot there that's a that's a loaded question here we go <laughs> i get i guess there are sort of three things if i had to you know simplify it is that is that you know it's a i look for at a limited number of industries uh and business models i research higher quality companies and then i i try to get involved when there's a mispricing and and I don't think that that's particularly different from many other investors. It might sound like what I'm saying is buy good businesses when they're cheap. I, I tend to think that nuance gets lost in simplicity. And so 
it, it's it's the nuances that make the difference because you know you see a lot of people have very similar approaches, but their results are very different. And and I think it's because there's these nuances and, and people don't necessarily discuss them often enough. So I guess maybe if I discuss a little bit the nuances of each of those different elements, um, maybe sort of starting by the industry sort of uh, aspect to things. And well, well here, let I me, guess let, let me, I'll set you up yeah, for that because, uh, you know, I, you know, I may, I may have, uh, may have sent you the question. So, you know what I'm about to ask next, and that's getting into the, uh, the nuances of some of these things. So here, let's, let's go through each point individual. So let's start with that first one. We're talking about limited industries, you know, um, I believe, I, quite frankly, that one thing that's really taken for granted is in the discovery process and it can be overwhelming. And I found myself when I was getting my start and thinking about investing and doing investing. And this is where I just always got lost was like, okay, I want to invest in this particular sector. Now what, you know, or industry, you know, and then from there you go down the rabbit hole in that sector, but then you potentially miss something about a sector that's tangential or, you know, it's the picks and shovels of this one sector that's so hot, but here's something that's going to be servicing that's, you know, even just hearing this question, I'm trying to spit it out now and it might never end, you know, I'm <laughs> going down the rabbit hole of asking this damn question, you know, so <laughs> I'd love to learn more about this. You know, how would you say looking at limited industries is, is different for you? And, and uh, tell, talk to us a little bit more about uh, your, the, this, this industry maps that you guys use as well? Sure, sure. So I guess from an industry standpoint, I, I think that I tend to stick to industries where I have some sort of experience, e either uh, sort of financial experience because I was covering on the south side or operational experience because either I worked in them or someone I'm close to works in them. Um, and so the combination of that, you know, leads me to have some sort of expertise, even though, you know, I, I don't want to claim that I know all these industries like the back of my hand. Um, but, you know, they tend to be oligopolistic and they tend to have structural growth. So, you know, food, beverage and tobacco, uh, home and personal care, uh, sort of luxury goods, media, um, software and technology uh, services, whether that's B2B services or healthcare services, um, industrials sort of, you know, I, I stick to those sort of sectors and, and they tend to have high returns on invested capital, uh, as well. Um, because, you know, the subcomponents are quite, you know, consolidated. And then the industry map idea really isn't my idea. Did Michael Mobuson, you know, has, has, I guess, initially put the idea in my head, you know, years ago. And, you know, he, he has that one that I think a lot of people have seen with sort of the airline industry. And, and really the idea was to just build that for all of the industries that, that I follow. Um, and I think the advantage of, of that is that you really break down the entire value chain. And, and that allows you to identify subcomponents that are particularly profitable to, and, and why and to identify areas of, of future growth and, and maybe changes in growth and, you know, accelerations or decelerations. It allows you to identify sort of niches. Um, and niche players. So if I give you an example, um, in the food and bev industry, um, you know, there's a company called Corbion, which I'm a shareholder of. And that company is a leader in lactic acid. And uh, lactic acid is used, you know, historically for preservation of food, meat and bread. Um, and it can also be used, and this is more recent, in the, the production of a biodegradable plastic, and, and, and it, it helps produce what's called PLA. And um, Corbyn, I, I would never have heard of Corbyn if I weren't speaking to companies like Unilever and Danone uh, 
and I didn't have a, a, a sort of map of the industry and I wasn't trying to understand the entire value chain and figure out, you know, okay, so, uh, and ask questions really to the companies and say, is there anyone within, you know, your space that's doing something innovative or that's it's doing something different and that's particularly unique and that they mention this company. And then when you look into it, you start understanding that, you know, there's, there's a new trend and that companies want less CO2 emissions. They want, uh, you know, something that's more sustainable in terms of their packaging uh, and that peel and then this biodegradable plastic potentially provides it and that um, and that they're uniquely positioned because there are only three players that provide lactic acid really at a, at a, on a grand scale and they have 40% market share globally and they, they, they're in locations where they have sort of lower costs in terms of feedstock is usually it's carbohydrates that allow you to produce lactic acid um, and that they formed a joint venture with Total who's, who's an, an expert in the field and, and that they've started producing it already and you know, if you don't do the industry maps, I think it's it's hard to find those sort of ideas before other investors hear about them. So sort of I, I've been a shelter of Corbyn for two years and, you know, now you're just starting to get brokers that are covering it because they've announced, you know, capacity expansion and which which is going to lead to, uh, I think, you know, quite a bit uh, of improvement in growth and, and eventually margins. Um, you know, but that, that move has already started and it started a while ago. And, and I think that if you want to anticipate things, uh, having industry maps and speaking to people along the value chain is super useful. Um, and so a big part of that is also just creating a network of contacts and different subcomponents and speaking to them on a semi-regular basis and just asking them questions about what's going on. And, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people say that, that they do that. And I think that, you know, it, that what I'm describing is a little bit different from sort of doing expert network calls. That's, that's not the same. Um, and I think when you've been following industries for a number of years, you, you sort of start to gain a network uh, and, and, and really be able to use it in, in, in a different way. Um, and so I guess that's, the, you know, for the, from the industry standpoint, I guess that's the, the, one of the differentiators. What, what would you say when you, in your experience now, you've been doing this for, for a while now, you know, in, in kind of putting in those 10,000 hours to understand, to even understand more those industries that you're interested in, you know, for those listening that want to really get after it and really understand an industry that they might have some interest in, and maybe some of those subsectors within that industry, what are some suggestions that you'd have for them so that maybe they can find some of these businesses before, you know, some other investors, let alone uh, some institutions? Sure. I think there are two or three things. The first is, 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 you know, this might sound obvious, but trade magazines are super useful and, and trade websites. Um, I, I, you know, I'm subscribed to a lot of them. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that's a super useful way of, of figuring out things maybe before it becomes obvious to others. Uh, the second is to use LinkedIn a lot. Uh, you know, the hit rate's not that good, but, you know, if you word things well, and if you send enough messages, you can usually get in touch with people in some form or another that, that work in an industry or a part of an industry that you're interested in. And then, you know, the third thing I think is Twitter. Uh, you know, Twitter is super useful for that. Uh, I mean, you'll find a lot of people that work in different industries that are present on Twitter. And if you if you search the right way, you can usually come up with a small list of people and get in touch. And I've had a lot of DMs with people uh, in, in different subsegments of industries, you know, via Twitter as well. So I think if you combine those three things, you have a reasonably good shot uh, at getting some insight. Very good. All right. I mean, that's how we got connected. You know, I, I, I yeah. probably, you know, <laughs> listen. I can't help you too much on industry front, but I'll I'll interview you. You know, so that that's good. Uh, but uh, <laughs> all right. So let, let's let's get into the your your second differentiator, and you talk about um, you know you're looking at quality companies differently. 
you know, so, so what do you mean by that? And, and I, this is really more or less your criteria for a potential investment. So, so love to learn more there. Sure. So I guess the first thing I'd say is that, is that um, I think it's important to differentiate between the sort of inputs and the outputs and often, often as investors, we tend to sort of mix those together. So you'll see people say, you know, oh, I'm looking for a business that is predictable, uh, you know, free cash flow generative, is dominant, has, you know, large barriers to entry, uh, earns high returns on capital and, and, and has a good management team. And th- th- those, all oh, those things are fine. I, I, guess buzzword. Hey, I use those buzzwords to sound very smart. Okay. <laughs> so let's not, you know, let's not, let's not sully them too. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I guess that like th- th- all those are fine. I think that the, what's important to do though, is to separate the inputs from the outputs. Cause some of those are inputs and some of those are outputs. And so the way that I, I like to sort of think about it is that if we start at the ultimate output of what quality is for me, it's it's basically a business that you know can generate significantly more free cash flow per share five, 10, 15 years from now. That that's the bottom line of, of what the output is of all the other things I'm about to discuss. Um and 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 so if we take it maybe from the start and we go back to the beginning, I think that you know the first sort of three things that I'm, that I'm looking for are sort of an attractive customer value proposition, um, a good industry structure and a competitive advantage. And I think that, you know, and, and, and most importantly, the second derivative of all three of those. So I want, um, you know, an an attractive customer value proposition, but that's improving uh, a competitive advantage that's strengthening uh, an industry structure that's getting better. Um, and when those three things are present, typically you have high returns on invested capital, or at least the potential for high returns on invested capital, depending on the maturity of, of the business. And so, you know, those three things are inputs for the output of high returns on invested capital. And then to that, you have to add a, a, a good management team. And, and there, what I'm looking for is sort of aligned incentives, super important. So typically I like, you know, family shareholders. Uh, or owner operators or founders, um, I prefer for them to sort of be quite innovative in their culture, to be adaptable, to have excellent sort of operating and capital allocation records, and the combination of a business with high returns and a good management team is that you know there's essentially three things, and, and it's going to drive how much capital is invested what kind of returns are generated and, you know, the competitive advantage period, which is sort of how long are those going to be done? And the combination of those three things is what leads to, you know, significant value creation in the future. And, and therefore, you know, as well, higher, higher, much higher free cash flows. And, and so, you know, it, that's sort of how I like to think about, about things. And on the, on those three things, the invest more capital, the improve returns on capital, or, you know, the, the, extend the, the cap in practical terms, you know, what in the invest more capital, what I'm looking for is, is sort of growth opportunities. And, and that might mean sort of a regional expansion or capacity expansion or new products or services um, in terms of return improves, improving returns on invested capital. I'm looking for, you know, sort of pricing uh, mix improvements or business model shifts, um, cost improvement, better efficiency, um, and then in the extending the cap, I'm, I'm really looking for them to sort of enhance switching costs, you know, I guess is, is, is one of them. 
Um, and, and there are a host of other things, you know, depending on the type of uh, competitive advantage that the business has, that, that, that those can be extended. But that's sort of how I, I, I have a, a little sort of map, which I, which I sent you, which is how I think about those things. And then, you know, uh, they're circular in a way, right? Because, uh, you know, the management team is also going to have an impact on the competitive advantage and whether it's strengthening or weakening, it's going to have an impact on the industry structure. Um, it's obviously going to have an impact, uh, you know, on, on, on where capital is invested and why, uh, and, and sort of, you know, I, I, I like to see that osmosis of those different things together. Um, and then there are all other patterns that also represent quality. There's, there's a great book called quality investing, which describes those patterns, which I think, you know, are, are important. Um, but that's sort of how, how I think about it. Um, and I think that, um, thinking of things that way allows you to anticipate as well. Um, because it's easy to look at ROIC in the past and screen over the past 10 years and say, this company has a high return to invested capital. It's a little bit harder, but I think more required today, given how competitive markets are to anticipate, uh, you know, improvement or, or even, you know, high returns on capital. And there are a lot of businesses that aren't profitable today or that are marginally profitable that have the potential to generate very high returns. And, and those might not be found by other investors if they're screening for simple metrics uh, and just looking at the past. So, um, Yeah. All right. Well, so it, my, my quick follow-up to that, I'd say is, you know, for you, you know, because a lot of what you're saying is, you know, uh, uh, there's a good amount of investors that look at some of the similar stuff that you're saying. But for you, you know, where do you have, where are your differential insights? Where do you find them? Uh, you know, because where, where is it on the margin? Really, you know, like, because as I said, mm. you know, a good amount of investors I've interviewed over the years, they mentioned, you know, some or all of what you said that you also look at, but for you, like, where have you found your best ideas on, because you were able to have a differential insight on that one particular thing? Sure. A I guess we'll get to this again. when we discuss. Sorry, I'm asking a lot of loaded <laughs> questions. I, I swear, it's, I'm, it's I'm really good. not trying to throw you any curveballs. I, I promise. I'm just, I'm a, four, I'm a, I'm a four seam fastball pitcher mostly, but anyways, all right. yeah. <laughs> I think, um, I think that the the um, the difference for me probably comes in in um, because I separate things in terms of the inputs and the outputs in that way. I think I tend to find situations that anticipate you know high returns on invested capital or improvement in invested capital. So, for example, I've been a shareholder of Spotify for the past sort of two and a half three years. That business is loss making. So, if you're looking for, to screen for a business with high returns on invested capital today, that's, you wouldn't consider Spotify to be a quality business. And I think that the debate that you hear in the market is that, you know, that they are um, sort of dependent on labels. They'll never get an improvement in gross margin. Uh, they don't really have operating leverage. I mean, these are the common things that you hear when you think about Spotify. And by the way, I'm a shareholder of Spotify. I'm also a shareholder of Vivendi. So I, I may be one of the rare people that is shareholder of both. So I, I'm, you know, I don't have this bias where I'm sort of like the, the labels are, are, are the winners or, or Spotify is the winner. But if I think about the competitive advantage of Spotify, and if I think about the industry structure and how those things are going to change, the first thing, you know, if you think about the different types of competitive advantage, I'm sure you've heard these from other people as well, you know, intangible assets, economies of scale, switching cost, network effects. I think that Spotify combines various elements of those. In terms of switching costs, I think the most common thing you'll hear is, um, well, everybody has access to the music and, and has the catalog, so that's not really a, a competitive advantage. That's, that's right. 
But I think that switching costs are higher than people assume because when you get accustomed to a user interface, when you build your you know, playlists, when, you, when the algorithm starts to understand what kind of music you like and recommends music to you and podcasts to you, to start all that over is, is time consuming and, and really a nuisance. So I, I think that people underestimate the switching costs. And, and how could we check if that's true? We could look at the most mature markets where they have high penetration, like in the Nordics, and that they've implemented price increases and that the churn hasn't gone up that much. In fact, has hardly gone up. And that they're going to be testing those price increases in seven, eight more markets probably over the next 12 to 18 months. And we'll see if churn increases there. But if we see that churn doesn't increase that much, despite, you know, the competition, you know, with Amazon and Apple, et cetera, then the conclusion will probably prove out that um, that actually there are more switching costs than people initially might have thought. And then so, so that's, you know, I think a component is that, you know, when, when you think about it and split things this way uh, and trying to anticipate things, I think that's that's one element of it. And then there are other elements to Spotify as well. It's sort of like the, the gross margin argument. There's two sides to that. The first is that there are ways that they can improve gross margin that, that don't involve renegotiating with labels. Um, one of which is shifting the mix of music played away from labels and more towards sort of independence where, you know, they're paying where the economics are different. And therefore, you know, today, I think, you know, it's roughly 87% of music that's streamed is from the major labels. It was five to seven percentage points higher a few years ago. That is going to continue to trend down. And, and, you know, the split with labels and, and publishers, if you combine them is like 70, 30, it's a lot less for the, 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 the independence. And if that keeps, you know, sort of shifting down towards sort of 80, 75, 70% over the next few years, that's going to impact gross margins in a, in a good way. Uh, the second thing is selling incremental services to, um, to labels uh, and, you know, data analytics. And I think that's also going to help. And then there's some pricing, as I said. So, um, you know, and, and the labels want those price increases, uh, obviously. So in, in terms of, you know, price increases to the end consumer. So if you get those those things, I think gross margins can actually improve a reasonable amount and, and they've guided to a certain level and a certain range. I, I think that um, if you look at the labels a few years ago, they guided similarly to sort of, you know, very limited uh, margin improvement and et cetera, because they don't want artists to see that they're getting much higher margins. And so, you know, that might lead to some renegotiations. And so I think Spotify is doing the same thing on their gross margins. And then beyond that, there's, you know, if you look at how much they spend in terms of, you know, OPEX, there's various areas, including R&D and marketing expense that I think can come down as a percentage of, of revenue over the next few years. I, I don't see the reason why those things would have to scale up. And, and, and so they should get some operating leverage. And so I guess the point is you could end up seeing a business with, you know, sort of five to 10% operating margins, if not higher in sort of five, six, seven years. And given the amount of growth, you, you, you get a, a pretty decent amount of free cash flow coming out of the business. Um, and so I, I, I guess what I'm trying to illustrate with that is that, you know, the way I look at quality is not just, um, you know, using static inputs and trying to extrapolate. It's more thinking uh, about, you know, the real drivers of things and how those are evolving over the sort of the, the medium to long term. Um, so that's sort of one one area where I think it's it's somewhat different uh, than I think what what um what other people might do. And then the other thing is is you know, a big focus on, on, um, on management and, um, 
And really, and I, this is the best way I can describe it, is there's a, there's a great Mark Zuckerberg quote from when he was asked sort of, um, why didn't you sell to Yahoo in 2006 for a billion dollars? And his answer was sort of, um, there were various things that didn't exist yet and therefore that they didn't include in their valuation and therefore they undervalued the company. And I think that the important thing in, in with management is it's not just to find management that's done share buybacks at an opportune time that has a reasonably good uh, allocation track record uh, in terms of, um, you know, a host of things. It's also finding management teams that are innovative and creative and that are going to, you know, I think, create products and services that you know don't exist yet and do so continuously and that comes back to you know if you've read phil fisher's book that second question is is basically that i mean you're looking for management teams that are going to find you know a way to replenish continuously their pipeline of innovation and new products and and because the products don't exist yet they're not included in people's models and therefore they perpetually surprise to the upside and the share and the intrinsic value increases and the share price outperforms and so i think spending a lot of time on management teams and culture and 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 how they're going to be able to create maybe new products and, and innovations and being imaginative on those things you know uh, and i think that like facebook's continues to be a good example of that today uh, i i think you know i'm also a shareholder of facebook and whether it's um, sort of, you know, monetization at Messenger and WhatsApp or, you know, the shopping aspect at, at, at Instagram or, you know, virtual reality with Oculus. I mean, there's a host of areas where, you know, they're able to create new revenue streams potentially uh, in, in various ways that, you know, are continually not well appreciated. So I think thinking about management in that way is in how that impacts, you know, where capital is invested, the returns that are generated and et cetera is another thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, on quality that's maybe a little bit different. So, I, you know, I just, I asked a similar question to what I'm about to ask you on our, on um, on my other show that I do called the, the Investors Roundtable. And that was talking about innovators and these, you know, revolutionary business minds. You know, you're thinking of the Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, the, you know, uh, Reed Hastings, you name it, right? Um, how for you do you, are you able to say, that person's an innovator, that person's imaginative. And maybe taking it a step further is, how do you think you would go about recognizing one of these individuals prior to the crowds now all agreeing like, yes, Mar you know, this guy's a, this person's a genius. This per this, that person's a genius, you know, uh, what, yeah, their business, they might be at a losing, you know, losing money right now, but they're a genius. Don't worry. They're gonna, it's gonna pan out for them. You know, so how, how do you think about that? Um, that's a good question. I, I think, uh, really just immersing yourself in, in, in the person and the team and reading, you know, everything that you can about them and listening to interviews and, and reading transcripts and, and seeing the way that they think. I think the only way to do that is, and, and I'll give an example. When I look over a business, I'll often take, you know, four or five, six years of, of, of quarterly transcripts. I'll print them all out and I'll read. And, and, you know, and for me, that's a good way of seeing sort of, you know, mm. how they think. And then obviously you connect that with reading the annual reports and you connect that with, you know, spending some time, you know, watching any interviews they've done and, you know, progressively. And, and I, you know, you could have done this with Steve Jobs a long time ago. I mean, you know, well prior to, I think, you know, when it became obvious to other people, um, it, it, it's, it's, 
it's sort of tough to describe. I mean, you sort of, it, it's sort of like asking, how do you know when there's, when you've identified a good jazz musician? Do you know what I mean? It, it's, it's sort of, you know, if you listen to a lot of music of, of that player and you listen to them in a lot of different situations, it, you sort of, you sort of start hearing a, a way of interpreting chord changes and interpreting songs and playing the right notes at the right time and atypical notes at certain times. And, right. and sort of, you know, if you listen to a lot of jazz, you sort of start figuring that out. And I think well, it's the same about management. Well, you know what, you know what I think maybe the question is, it's really the difference between like a really, really, really good salesperson and, uh, and really an imaginative thinker and a creative thinker. I mean, if somebody is both of those, I mean, I guess that's the crown jewel, of course, but I mean, <laughs> I, I'd say, I'd say that's something that, especially for the lay investor is probably sometimes very difficult to really, discern is like all right is this person just really able to tell this they're just oh you put them on an interview they got their talking points they they're killing it you know and and they're even maybe able to sound imaginative and creative you know or maybe but you don't realize that behind the scenes you know that's their team of people that are helping them get to that point versus you know the steve jobs and and others out there who you know they're a singular force that you're you're like all right that's it. You know, I think that's something that, you know, I, I, a lot of people get caught. Sometimes I, I, I do interviews on a daily basis with some of these CEOs. I, I, I get caught up all the time where I just, I'm asking myself afterwards. I'm like, are they good salesmen or, or are they actually, you know, a true, true innovator in the space? Like, you know, it's, it's sometimes very difficult. And then on top of which, then you have to ask the question of, all right, if they're an, an innovator and creative, are they, do they know how to run a business? <laughs> then you have to go there, sure, and, then sure. you, and then you and then you go on that on that roller coaster. You know, I'm sure you I'm sure you've dealt with that plenty of times. Sure, no, it's true. I, it's it's not an easy question to answer. I, I but I think it's like the art of it. I'll give you an example. Yeah, exactly. I'll give you an example with Zuckerberg. There's some leaked emails that you can find online uh, of him discussing various topics, and if you read through those emails, you think you get a pretty good sense of how forward-looking he is, of how atypical his reasoning is. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, it's, uh, at least to me, that was a pretty interesting thing. I mean, when it, reading through those, uh, I got a good sense of, of what he's like. And, and uh, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when you see it type thing. Fair enough. All right. So we're going, we're finally, we're getting to the, the, the third and final differentiator <laughs> here. Um, so I'm actually, you, you put out a Twitter thread that was very similar, uh, talking about, uh, why things become mispriced. That's one of your, your, your core things for differentiation is mispricing. So, you know, what, why do things in your opinion, why do you, why do things become mispriced and, and how do you assess mispricing evaluation differently? Sure. Sure. So I guess, on mispricing, I think that I'm sure you've heard this a lot. You know, stock prices fluctuate more than underlying business value. I think that's that's a given. But I think that the market is, for the most part, quite efficient. So there are like marginal mispricings and small mispricings relatively often, but large mispricings don't occur that often. And I think that, you know, when you think about what mispricing means, what it really means is that expectations are unduly sort of pessimistic or, or optimistic. And so I like to think through sort of the ways in which consensus expectations can be wrong. And they can be wrong in only a few ways, sort of direction, magnitude, duration, timing, risk of free cash flows. That, that's sort of how I think about it. And I need to have a different view on at least one of those and, and be right uh, for, for it to work out. And so when I sort of wonder why 
do those things happen? Why do why are the mistakes made on those four or five different things? It usually, if you take it back to first principles, it usually comes down to two things. It's either that investors are exaggerating something, in in which case it's you know behavioral, or it's that they're missing something, in which case it's you know analytical or technical or maybe even to a lesser extent now informational. So if I think about the sort of investors exaggerate something side, you know the typical ones that you'll see are sort of temp- temporary company issues that are extrapolated by investors, and it might be sort of a restructuring or a division that's going through a tough time, etc. A uh, second thing might be sort of a segment or a region that's in a cyclical slowdown. Uh, you know, I don't invest in this sector, but I mean, it, oil a few years ago is an example, or even earlier this year could be an example. It might be sort of a recession or, or a general slowdown. Uh, it might be things like sort of uh, politics or, or the hostile Fed, or, or there's a host of things. But you know, those tend to lead to exaggeration in, in some way or another. And then on the investors are missing something side. Uh, I think that, you know, there are different types as well. There's there's three or four things, you know, there's the ones that are well-known sort of it's underfollowed. So, you know, micro cap or small cap uh, companies that don't give guidance and things like that. Um, There's sort of uh, situations where quantitative screens don't reflect reality uh, either because for example, the company reinvests via their P and L or, you know, there's a host of reasons why a quant screen might not pick something up. So people miss it. There's time horizon. So, you know, uh, where people are focused on the next, you know, few quarters, uh, we're, you know, as the real story is sort of three, four five years from now. Uh, and then there's uh, corporate change. And, and, and that is sort of the area that I focus on the most. Um, and, and I think that um, that comes from a few different things. I think it, it really initially came from just um, examining, you know, great investors and trying to figure out what they had in common. Um, and you know, whether it's sort of, you know, Karen Nelson in Australia or, or Paul Marshall in the UK or, you know, Bailey Gifford in Scotland or, or Henry Ellenbogen or, or, or WCM in the United States. I mean, at the end of the day, what I found is that a lot of these guys, what they have in common is that they're, they're, they're looking for some form of change. There's a great investor on, on Twitter named Elliot Turner, who's, who is also very good at that. Um, and he's a super nice guy too. <laughs> Um, and we discuss this all the time. And, and I, I think that, um, so, you know, in terms of, you know, change the way that I like to think about it is that basically, you know, the valuation of a business probably won't change unless something is changing intrinsically about the company. Um, and, and so I sort of like to look for situations where there's some form of change. So when I, you know, I don't really run screens, sort of quant screens or anything, you know, like that, but I do. If I am going to screen for something, it's going to be changed. Uh, and, and, you know, by that, I mean, sort of, you know, it might be a new management team. Uh, it, it might be uh, a strategy update or adjustment. It might be a business model shift uh, or, or pivot. It might be a meaningful increase in research and development or, or CapEx. It might be a large increase in OpEx. Uh, uh, it might be a sort of a new product or, or a new market they're launching or a, a, a new region, um, you know, sort of it, those are the types of things I'm looking for because in, investors typically, you know, extrapolate, you know, what's happened in the past. And if something is going to lead, you know, the future to not resemble the past, it, it, it has a reasonable chance of not being properly picked up by investors. And so I think that's a, that's an important sort of aspect of, of how I look at things and I'm relating that to valuation. 
I think the typical thing you're going to see on valuation is, is someone is going to say, okay, given stock is trading at 25 times earnings, which is, you know, well above or below the five-year average and well above or below its peers. And therefore the stock is far too expensive or inexpensive. And, and I don't use that framework at all. Like I, I, um, I just, I don't think it's particularly useful to, to, to do things that way. Um, and I think that the way that I think about it is that, you know, first like intrinsic value for me is, is based on risk and time adjusted long-term cash flows and earnings might correlate with free cash flow, but they're not the same. Uh, you know, earnings don't include the capital required to generate growth. Um, and, and, and a single year's worth of earnings has very little to do actually with long-term cash flows and value creation. So I think it's a poor proxy for intrinsic value. And, and I realized that, you know, some people are going to say, yeah, well, if you look at the DCF and the terminal value calculation, if, if you take, you know, the, 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 the weight average cost of capital minus the, the, the sort of um, long-term growth rate or residual growth rate and you invert it, that's a multiple, but yeah, it is, but it's a multiple on cash flows a long time from now. Uh, and, and the, those things are explicit. So you can think about them. So I'm, I don't want to make it seem like I'm a, I'm a diehard DCF fan, but I'm just saying that I think there's, there's another way to, to, to approach it. And I think that using shortcuts is just not a, a good way. And that, that includes, you know, all the traditional price to earnings, EV EBIT, EV EBITDA, price to sales. I, I really don't use any of those in my framework. I, I, um, and, and I think, so if you wanted me to, to discuss how I think about valuation, I think at the end of the day, it's about expectations. And I think that, you know, we're looking for companies that we think can surpass expectations. And I try to think about that both in explicit terms and implicit terms. So I guess the former can be sort of done in two ways. You can sort of look at Bloomberg consensus uh, over the next few years for the sell side and assume that, you know, the buy side is often quite similar to the sell side. Um, you can look at company compiled consensus, which often goes out a few years. Um, and so that can give you a good idea of, you know, what kind of organic growth and margin improvement and, and, uh, and uh, working capital dynamics and CapEx and, and, and free cash flow is the market estimating and trying to figure out, you know, is that realistic or not? Um, the other thing is to, to run a reverse DCF. And, and what, what I do with that is I, I just look at, you know, five or, cent, five or 10 sell side notes, try to figure out what sort of weighted average cost of capital they're using and, and what sort of, you know, residual growth rate they're using. And then I, I, uh, I plug in the free cash flow, you know, growth rate or duration to get to the current valuation. And then I try to say, hey, do those things, things seem realistic to me. Um, and what sort of things would break the model. So what, what sort of things would cause the, you know, either, you know, the free cash flow side or the risk side. So the, the, the discount rate or to, to be significantly different than what people think. Um, and, you know, that's been very useful to me. And it, it, what it allows me to do is not fall into the trap, which I did in the past of, you know, owning a business and selling it because the multiple looks expensive. Uh, you know, it, it, a, a business with a low multiple, that surpasses expectations will probably outperform a business with a high multiple where the company surpasses expectations can also outperform. So I think really, if you focus on it that way, it, it's, it's a different angle. And, and, and that, and, you know, it, it's, you know, I, I get a lot of flack this. We discuss it and people sort of say, how can you not look at multiples? But I, I, I found that my, I've become a lot more successful. It's been maybe five, six, seven years since I stopped really, you know, using them as much. Um, and, and I've been a lot more successful doing it. And I, and I, I just want to 
put a caveat. I realize that some people might say, man, how, how late cycle is this? He's talking about not using multiple. It's not a question of not paying attention to valuation. I think valuation is super important. I just think that um, I, I don't think the traditional way of looking at it is particularly useful to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I hope that sort of answers the question and, and to sort of, and so in the end, when, I, when I'm thinking about that, I'm sort of thinking, how can these changes lead to either, you know, higher free cash flows than the market thinks or lower riskiness of those free cash flows than the market thinks? And I think that's another thing that's super important is that I think what we're taught at school, right, is you want to buy businesses at a discount to intrinsic value, which makes sense. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? I think it makes a lot of sense. But let me ask you a question. If you have a stock that returns sort of 10 or 20 times over the number of years, what does that mean? Does that mean that people purchased at sort of a, a, a 90 or 95% discount to intrinsic value at the onset? Or does it mean that it's now trading at you know, a, a significant premium to intrinsic value. So what, what, what drives the, the return? Uh, you know, some people might say it's time, which is, which is true. The roll forward of the DCF does that. I think it's also that intrinsic value isn't static and it changes and that it changes based on, uh, you know, how, um, you know, future value creation plays out relative to expectations. And, and I think if, if you either invest more capital at attractive returns in the market thought, or you improve returns on capital versus what the market thought, or you extend the duration of your competitive advantage versus what the market thought, or the riskiness, either in terms of aggregate rates or uh, your capital mix, or uh, you know the beta or risk premium, if those things are different than what was initially thought, then you know you create more value than was initially assumed, and the intrinsic value goes up. And I think that that's that's what drives the significant returns over time is changes in intrinsic value and. And so, you know, that's sort of how I think about things a lot. And when I'm going through companies, I'm often asking myself, you know, is this the type of business where intrinsic value can increase? And, and I think that's a, an important uh, component. And I, I think that if you, if you focus too much on having this intrinsic value initially in the static approach, you miss a lot of companies. And I myself, you know, th this came from, you know, I own Amazon from 2009 to 2014, late 2014, and it did pretty well. And then it went up 10 times after I sold. Uh, and, and I think I realized this maybe a year or two after I sold and it already doubled and tripled. I was like, there's something wrong with my framework. So this is sort of like maybe six, seven, six years ago now. Um, almost seven, yeah, six, seven years ago. And I, I, I sort of was like, there's something wrong with my framework. If, if, I'm, if I'm missing things like this, then there must be something that I'm doing that's not right. And I think that if, if we were in any other field and there was a framework that people used that consistently showed something was unattractive, despite it actually being attractive, they would question it. And, and whereas people in, in our business don't tend to do that, they, they sort of accept this framework that I think is commonly used, which, you know, I think is a mistake. Well, no, I mean, it not, and this is putting everything that you brilliantly just said as simply as possible. I mean, at the end of the day, stock price is not something that as investors, if you're an investor, if you're truly an investor, stock price is something that you really, you shouldn't take so much, uh, put so much weight in that. You know, what you really should be doing is a lot of what you're saying, whether it's what you're saying or some of the other investors I've had on here, is just focusing on trying to come up with your own thesis for what you think the company will be valued at. Because if it's if it's already overvalued based on what you see today, then okay, you know, it's overvalued. Maybe you don't want to be part. Okay, that's fine. You know, but if if you're and that and if you're not looking at stock price and you come to that conclusion, okay. I think we can all make an argument of like, all right, if that's your perspective and that's how you think about it, that's fine. But if you're not 
again, if you're not thinking about stock price and you're seeing that this company can be worth, you know, whatever multiple or this, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the road, then it really shouldn't matter what, if, if, if it's a trading at 10, 20, 50 times multiple today, you know, and you know that the price is probably going to take a huge steep drop at whatever price you bought it at, but you are confident in the core underlying business that you're willing to take that ride. I fully agree with that. And, and you know, another thing related to that is like, I, th I think that it's important to have principles and a framework that sort of can work irrespective of era or of, uh, or of region or of maturity or size of the company. And I, I think that like using shortcuts, like multiples, they, they don't work for all situations. And if they don't work, then I, for me, that means the framework is flawed in a sense. Like you, you, how do you value, uh, you know, how do you value an early stage company or, you know, a, a small cap company or a micro cap that doesn't have any earnings or in some cases, you know, has even moderate sales. I mean, what, if, if you can't use those shortcuts for those and therefore, you know, I think that it's, it, yeah, I, I, there's a, there's a better framework to, to, to be used. And I, I, um, I just try and think to myself, what, what is free cash flow per share going to look like over the medium long term? Uh, and, and try to think about the riskiness of it. And, and I, I found that that framework has just worked a lot better for me. Very cool. All right. So we're going to, uh, my, my final question based on the presentation that you sent to me uh, uh, prior to the interview to get prepared is uh, there was one set, there's two sections that I wanted to kind of get your quick take on is, is how you think about risk management and portfolio construction. So, you know, what, what, what's your take on that? And then we'll get to some of your other Twitter threads that I, I think people uh, would love to hear more about. Sure. I think so on, on risk management, I, I, there's a host of ways to do this and I don't, I don't claim by any means to be an expert. I can just speak about how I, how I sort of approach it. And I think that sort of, you can think about it on a company specific standpoint and on a portfolio standpoint. Um, and there are sort of two ways that I deal with that. The, the, it, I agree with something that Anthony Bolton uh, said, which is basically that, you know, to generate a great long-term track record, you need, you know, just two things, a, a few big winners, and an avoidance of disasters. And I think that, you know, a big part of how I think about risk management is, is how can I avoid disasters, uh, both at a company standpoint and on, on, a, on a portfolio standpoint. So on the company standpoint, you know, outside of, you know, listing out the risks that I think that, you know, you, you typically can find when you think through this type of stuff, sort of, you know, the, I'm sure you've seen people talk about these a thousand times, sort of poor understanding, low quality, overvaluation, um, you know, cyclicality, obsolescence, regulation. There's a host of things that, you know, I, everyone looks at. I look at those two. But I think that more importantly, I, I, I try to have something in my process that's sort of, a, in French, there's an expression called a garde-fou. And what it means is like something that, that, um, that stops you from, from doing something crazy. And, and for me, what that means is, is that I sort of have an ethos of, you know, uh, cut losses, ride winners. And, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, when I'm building a new position, I have no problem, you know, averaging down initially. But once I reach my full position target, um, if it's down sort of 25% from there, you know, in a normal market, in normal market conditions, so that's to say not in a bear market, then I usually just sell the position. Because if I already thought that it was mispriced beforehand, I've already started averaging down and it still goes against me, then I, I you know, in my experience more often than not, I just missed something. And, and, and so, um, you know, I, I'd prefer to pass and, and, you know, also it, it beyond that level is where the asymmetry of gains and losses really kicks in, you know, like if you, if you're down 
you need 43% to make it back. If you're down 40, you need 67. If you're down 50, you need 100. So beyond that sort of 30% loss threshold, it becomes tougher to make back. Uh, and, and it can become disastrous. I mean, if you let it, you know, go a lot further than that, and if there's multiple instances of it. So I try to just limit that altogether. And then the second thing, you know, related to sort of a portfolio management aspect is, is diversification. And, and to me, that, that is less about the number of positions in the portfolio, and it's more about their correlation. So I sort of have different ways of thinking about the, the positions in my portfolio. I have, you know, s- situations that I would characterize as sort of durable growth and quality, uh, situations that I would characterize as sort of, you know, rapid or very rapid uh, growth and quality, and situations that I would characterize as sort of cyclical growth and quality, and, and those I would characterize as sort of um, recovering growth and quality. And and what I like to do in the portfolio is have a balance of those different things. And And what that means is that, you know, if you get into an environment that's, you know, highly momentum driven, you know, like in the late nineties, um, you know, if you, if you tend to have too many stocks that are all of that sort of type, uh, you know, when things change, it can, it can be significantly painful. I mean, in terms of the, the drawdowns you can have, uh, and, and by contrast, if you're in, you know, late 2006, seven, and, you know, a lot of the cyclical inflationary type stuff is done incredibly well, and you find yourself with a lot of those ideas that also can lead to a significantly bad outcome. So from my experience, you know, having a balance of those things, because each of those buckets will, will react differently depending on the environment. So if we're in an environment where, um, you know, inflation is rising and, and is quite high and, you know, the cyclical portion will do quite well. If we're in an environment where, you know, we're recovering out of, out of a very tough economic situation, the, the recovery aspect will do well. If we're in an environment that's very deflationary, then the durable aspect will do well. If, if, if we're in an environment where um, sort of it's very momentum oriented, the rapid stuff will do well. And so, you know, what it really allows me to do, I think, is, is focus on the stock picking and that that's what's going to drive the difference and not, you know, sort of some view that I have on which sectors are going to do better. And because I think that's really hard to do. And, and, um, and I, you know, I just want to have some balance there. And that's how sort of I approach it and to never have a disaster from that standpoint, uh, you know, hopefully. And that also is particularly important today, I think, with interest rates where they are. Like, I, you know, I'm not a macro investor, even though there's a lot of really smart guys that do that. And I, I respect their approach. But I do think that when you invest in quality businesses, you structurally, you know, I mean, there's it's hard to argue that you haven't benefited significantly from interest rates going, you know, from 15% in the early 80s in the US down to, you know, effectively zero on the 10 year today. I mean, just, you know, quality businesses and growth businesses are longer duration assets where a lot more of the values in the future and Therefore, they're a lot more sensitive to rates. So I, I think a lot of people, if you look over the past 10 years, um, you know, potentially don't realize the extent to which their portfolio has done well because of that component, because of the lower discount rate. And I, I've seen, you can see it. Look back five, six years ago at, at sell-side reports and you have like nine, 10%, you know, discount rates. And now, you know, on, on some high quality companies, we're at 5%. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, some people may tend to think that just having decent earnings growth is enough to outperform over time. I think that's going to be less true over the next 10 years than it was over the last 10 years, if I had to guess. Um, and, and I think that's an important sort of aspect of things. And, and having a balanced portfolio relating to that, I think, is also important in, in to, you know, avoid a situation where everything in your portfolio reacts similarly. And um, so, like, when I look at my portfolio and I see some things having a great day and other things not having a great day, I usually think of that as a good sign of balance. And if I had everything reacting similarly, I would be a little bit scared, I think. 
Fair enough. I mean, uh, these are all great points right here. So, I mean, so, okay. I wanted to, to continue on because um, you've, you, you've put out quite a few interesting investing threads on Twitter and uh, some of which that you sent me previously. And, and I had a chance to go through prior to our, to our chat and uh, a couple that stood out to me that I wanted to really talk about here and get some more insight um, because I think we're at that point in the interview where, you know, it's a good chance to reflect on, especially your history and getting to where you are today. You know, uh, one in particular, you talked about how the concepts of quality and contrarianism really helped you grow, uh, as a traditional value investor that you were when you say you got started like around 15 years ago. So you want to provide a little color on that thread and, and how you as an investor have changed in your career to where you've gotten today. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Good question. I, I think that um, I talked about a lot of things in the thread. I think one of the most important things is is focusing on the 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 delta or sort of the second derivative of things. You know, like sort of it's nice to have a competitive advantage, but you know, if we look back, you know, ten years ago, there's a lot of businesses that we would have said this company has a great competitive advantage, and, and today, you know, they either no longer exist or, or are struggling in a significant way. And so I think looking at the, the direction and in, in the, either the strengthening or the weakening of competitive advantage is super important. And it's something I didn't do initially. And I found myself with sort of owning shares in eBay for a number of years, which was a mistake, uh, you know, in the past at least. And, um, and uh, you know, if I had been paying attention more to, you know, are they getting stronger or weaker in terms of the competitive dynamics, I would have probably avoided that mistake. Uh, and, and I think the, the opposite is also true in terms of finding opportunities. So um and that's true for competitive advantage. It's true for uh, value proposition. It's true for industry structure. Um, it's true for management capital allocation. I mean, focusing on the second derivative, I think, is super, super important uh, and, and something that I didn't do initially you know, when I started, you know, let's say, almost 20 years ago now. Um, I think probably the other important thing there is, uh, for me at least, is maybe on the quality side is... is um, spending a lot more time not behind my desk, essentially. Uh, you know, early on, I spent a lot of time just purely reading. And I maybe because I was a bit more shy or maybe because I, I didn't want to spend the time doing it. I didn't get out on the road enough. I didn't speak to enough people. Um, and, I, and I made that a conscious sort of part of my process. And, and I think you learn a lot of things from people on the road and, and, and you know, across the value chain that you don't learn in documents. And, and so that's another thing that has helped me improve a ton over the past sort of a uh, few years in terms of, you know, the, the quality aspect of things. And then on the contrarianism aspect, I think really like, I tend to think that, you know, people that are contrarian are always contrarian. So, so it's a character trait. And as I said earlier, I think markets are, are somewhat efficient, pretty efficient. And so if you're contrarian all the time, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a tough game. And so, I think that, you know, trying to be creative and imaginative and independent in your thinking is a much better goal than trying to be contrarian uh, and, and trying to always find situations where if, I think there's two ways of approaching the market. You know, I, I think there's, you know, initially, maybe when I started, I was sort of like the market's very inefficient and there are so many opportunities. And then, you know, as I got hit in the face a bunch of times, I sort of gradually moved towards the market's pretty efficient and, and big mispricings don't occur that often. And so, uh, you know, I think that's another sort of important thing that, you know, I would, I would think is, is changed me sort of quite a bit, uh, you know, over the, over the past few years. Um, yeah, I think those are sort of, sort of a few of the things that I'd pull out of that thread that I think are, uh, are 
are have been particularly useful to me. I think there's a lot of microcap investors out there listening and being like, Eric, what do you mean? The markets aren't efficient. That's our opportunity. What are you talking about? You know, but uh, but uh, hey, this is an opportunity to say why it the market still might be somewhat efficient, and yet you can still find opportunities with microcaps. Yeah, I mean, well, look, if the market were perpetually inefficient all the time, then those microcaps that you were buying that the market was missing, I mean, what's going to cause the market to figure it out? I mean, it's because, you know, it, it trends towards efficiency and because it's very competitive and there are a lot of part, smart people in the market. And sure, there are pockets of tremendous inefficiency, but there are pockets. It's not like in aggregate, everything is so inefficient all the time. And I, I think That's it's fair. also a mindset thing. If you, if you think that way, you respect the market a little bit more uh, and, and to me, that's made a big difference in terms of the way that, you know, like I, I spend a lot more time questioning, is this really that good of an opportunity? Why are people missing this? Like what's, you know, and, and that relates to the mispricing aspect of things, but yeah. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, maybe we should qualify it as like, uh, look, it's, it's inefficient when the companies, uh, you know, have no love. And then they're efficient when, uh, yeah, they're getting all this love. Yeah, there's so much efficiency is right. <laughs> the, the, my company, my portfolio is doing great. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I, as I said at the beginning of this interview, you know, um, I also grew up playing uh, a lot of jazz music. I, I'm a drummer personally. Um, I'm mm. killing to play a set right now. I think that's the one huge, dis, you know, uh, cultural disadvantage to being a drummer is that it's impossible to ever, you know, to it's very hard to f figure out your space and get that all figured out. You know, you know all too well because mm. uh, even as a fellow musician, you're like, oh, this freaking guy is so loud over there sometimes usually we're just banging stuff and just trying to figure it out otherwise other than like guitarists where you know at least sounds nice when you're still just trying to figure it out with us it's just bang, bang, bang. but anyways um you know <laughs> you you put out a, tw a, a, a another twitter thread that i love where you said um that uh, it was on the two things that helped you improve as a guitarist that have applications for investing so can you describe those sure um, I guess the first aspect is in, in guitars and, and, and any soloing, really, uh, there's sort of a trend towards, you know, memorization versus understanding. And what I mean by that is that people in, in, will memorize scales instead of trying to understand, you know, why certain notes sound good in a given context. And, um, you know, for people that don't play music, scales are sort of patterns uh, that, that can be played over certain chords. And, and chords are really what make up songs. Chords are just a... a, a you know, a, a few notes that are played together. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the using scales, like you can get by books with these patterns of which scales work over which chords and et cetera. And, you know, what ends up happening when you do that is that you get what's called stuck in a box. So, you, you know, you'll take us like, you know, I'll give you an example. In, in blues music, there's a the scale called the pentatonic scale, which is used a lot in blues. And it's, it's a nice, nice, neat little shape that's very easy to play. And when people learn, they initially memorize the shape and then they play it over the entire blues song. And what ends up happening is they, they end up, you know, playing like sort of all the notes are appropriate, but they end up playing sort of random appropriate notes at random points. And it doesn't really sound like music. And, and when it sounds good, they don't really know why it sounds good. It's, it's very mechanical and you end up sounding like everybody else. And sort of the, the best players don't think using scales because they understand how chords are constructed. 
which notes are going to sound good in a given spot. And most importantly, they understand how to transition between different chords and anticipate those chords. And that really is what makes them sound musical. And, you know, there's a great French, uh, probably one of the best guitarists in the world. His name is Birelli Lagraine. He's a French a gypsy jazz guitarist. And he didn't go to school for the most part. And he doesn't know any scales. And yet he's this unbelievable player, both musically and technically. And, if, and when you watch interviews of how he learned, he was sort of like, look, we started playing when we were three and we played loads of different songs and jams. And, and, and we were taught on how to think about chords and how to think which notes sound good in given instances and not sort of, you know, a mechanical way of playing things. And the way that that, uh, you know, I think about that in investing is that, um, you know, sort of ratios and formulas and, and, and accounting sort of factors are, are all things that you can memorize and apply. And, you know, that's similar to learning scales in guitar and, and really understanding, you know, the dynamics behind future value creation and understanding the inputs to those and really digging into those things is, is, is very different. Uh, and, and I think that that's sort of the equivalent of, uh, of you know, learning how to disaggregate chords and, and why certain things sound good in a given instance. Um, and, and then you know, uh, understanding mispricing and why the company is gonna surpass expectations is, is similar. You know, these are like fundamental things that are principles that work irrespective. And by the way, a, a, a great player that understands those things is not only gonna sound great to you when you hear it, even though you don't realize it, but they also can play over anything. Like a blues player, uh, someone that only learns pentatonic scale can probably only play over blues music if you give them a complex jazz piece with a lot of chord changes or classical music or they, they fall apart whereas someone that understands how chords are constructed and really what's behind things they can play any style of music and sort of like my favorite one of my favorite guitar players is, is a guy named larry carlton and he's an unbelievable blues and, and jazz player and you can you can type on youtube larry carlton uh, larry's blues and you'll, you'll hear it immediately you'll, it's sort of very like um the notes are very accessible to people and it just sounds amazing. It's, it, it, and he also is one of the best studio musicians of all time, played for Barbara Streisand, played for Joni, like I can list dozens and dozens. He's won multiple Grammys and those are all different styles. But the fact that he's, he's so sound in his understanding of things has led him to be able to play, you know, irrespective of era, because he did it in the seventies, he did it in the nineties, he did it in the 2010s, won Grammys in all those eras. He uh, has played over multiple styles. And, and I think that it's the same sort of an investing. I think if you have a really good understanding of these things, you can do it in multiple regions, multiple company maturities, multiple eras. And you're not dependent on, you know, when, you know, like price to sales right now or EV to sales is very you know, popular. Uh, you know, a decade ago, it was, you know, asset based valuation a decade before that. There's a host of things that, you know, if you're doing that, I don't think that's the right way to, to approach things. And, and I think music helps me think about, about that in that way. And then the other thing is there's something in guitar playing, which is super important is that the, the listener's ears function more slowly than the player's brain. And that's super important because you'll play something and you'll think that it's getting through to the audience, but often it's too complicated. And, and so you need to, uh, you know, find ways of, of, of bringing in repetition, simplicity and et cetera. I think that's useful in investing both in when you build an investment case, but also when you, you pitch to other people. Uh, you know, I mean, often, you know, and this, I've, I'm responsible for this probably even today is, you know, I'll explain something and, and I won't realize that what I'm saying is not getting through to the person across. You, you know what I mean? And so 
I think, you know, when I understood that in guitar playing, I became a lot more enjoyable to listeners. And I think that, you know, as I've understood that in investing, I think I've tried to simplify things in how I explain, you know, an approach or, or explain a, an investment case. And so it, I think it helps in that way too. I could not agree with, well, I agree with everything that you just said, but especially the last bit that you just said, because especially as a drummer and it's, I'm one of those that like, I like to be the center of attention. So even if a guitar, a guitar player is playing his solos, like I'll do those extra hits, you know, that you're like, did he have to, but like, it's because I was anticipating, <laughs> because it was, but, but it was because I was always anticipating that next lick that you're going to do or to like make, or like to emphasize it a little bit more. But, uh, but going back to your part, point about, you know, uh, trying to understand why the chords are played in a certain way and why, you know, uh, you know, using certain scales across all different genres and all that kind of stuff, you know, like it, for a drummer, you know, it's just understanding what, what typical time signatures are, you know, understanding yeah. why you know, you would use those different time signatures for, you know, a bossa nova versus a, you know, typical jazz standard, whatever, uh, or just a rock song, you know, what understanding what works and what doesn't work. And then, you know, that's where the improvisation comes in because then you can just play it, play around because you're like, all right, as long as I know I got to keep my hi-hat going on two and four, I can do whatever the fuck I'm part of my French. I can do whatever the fuck I want, you know? And, uh, I, I think about it the same way. That, that's, that's so, that's so right. And by the way, like if you just memorized given drum patterns and then you know you were playing with people and they were like okay hey, we're going to play in a different signature you would be lost and, and so you know understanding the structure of things like that is is super important i think you know the same thing applies to investing yeah a thousand percent all right dude well i, I have to ask this is my favorite question to ask everybody actually that last question that i just asked that's probably not my new favorite question to ask anybody everybody so anybody listening that wants to be interviewed by me you better pick up a, uh, an instrument but um <laughs> <laughs> but but Eric, what would you say is an investor experience that impacted you the most in your career? You you already went through a couple just now, but what would you say of all of them that has kind of set you on your path? Sure, I think there's sort of there's sort of three things that I think are important and that I I I, I, I can think about. Um, the first one is sort of something that happened not long after I joined my former firm maybe sort of like 18 months after I joined, maybe two years in that range. And my, my former boss called me into his office and said, you know, he had a sheet of paper. And on that sheet, there was sort of um, uh, a list of ideas. Uh, and, and, and he said, you know, look, here's the ideas you pitched since you got here. And, you know, you're reasonably good at the, the quality stuff, but, you know, the, the, the value oriented stuff isn't so good. And so you should stick to what you're good at. And, 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 you know, I think most people when criticized sort of tend to focus on it as sort of a personal attack and they get defensive. And so my first reaction was to deflect and protect my ego. And I, I got out of the office and the first thing I did was I, I looked for explanations and I, and I didn't really have too much trouble finding, you know, finding a few. And it was sort of like, um, you know, I, I looked at how value would perform during that period and noticed that, you know, value was down 10% during the period and, and my recommendations were flat. So, you know, relative to the style, it's not that bad. Um, you know, he, then I found other explanations. He, he only selected a subset. He didn't include everything. You know, like I, I just looked for a bunch of reasons. And at the end of the day, after, you know, a few hours, I sort of started to realize that, you know, um, all that might be true, but it doesn't mean that I, I didn't make mistakes and uh, that I, there aren't things that I can learn about. And, 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 you know, the rationalization might have made me feel better short term, but it was pretty much an excuse. Uh, and, um, you know, the aforementioned factors weren't mutually exclusive to me, you know, having not done a good job. And so 
you know, sort of the first thing that I did when I, you know, went over and analyzed those things was that the first thing that sort of jumped off the page is that I was there for, you know, less than two years and there were sort of 20 to 30 recommendations on the page. And I was sort of like, how could I really have known that much about so many companies or had a differentiated view on so many companies? And, and you know, it, what it sort of, you know, made me, uh, you know, I sort of ingrained it within me that, you know, uh, I, I couldn't. And the result was that the track record was mixed. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I, I sort of realized that there aren't that many good ideas and that you need to be very selective. And, and that, that sort of hammered that home. And then, you know, and I looked at all the recommendations, I noted that, you know, there were similar traits to the ones that didn't work well, you know, like they, they, they were, you know, sort of structurally, you know, low return businesses or, or average businesses. They were in industries that had structural headwinds and, and limited growth and therefore were, you know, highly competitive. Um, they had management teams that had no skin in the game. I mean, they're just things that, that a lot of them had in common. And so it sort of taught me what to, what to avoid, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was, a, that was a, probably a big experience because it also helped me figure out that, you know, mistakes are a source of learning. And, and, and I had, I, you know, I had read about it, but it was the first experience for me where I was sort of like, wow, like I can use these mistakes as a way to really improve significantly. And that's just a mindset shift. And, and, and since then, you know, I, I sort of, I don't want to say that like mistakes are a source of joy because it's painful when you make a mistake, but it's, it's something that I look at differently than I did before. And it's more constructive now. Uh, and, and, and so that was a big, a big thing. The second experience, I think I mentioned this before, but it's just, it's an important one is, is, you know, the things I sold that went on to go on a ton. So I, you know, I own Amazon in 2009 to 2014. I own Adobe from 2009, 2014, both of those, you know, were significant misses in, in, in terms of selling way too early. And that led me to rethink the, the valuation framework, you know, that, that I, um, that I, that I work with. Uh, and then the third one is from sort of my sell side days, uh, sort of late into my sell side days. And it was, uh, you know, I was covering consumer staples and I, I sort of met with loads of invest, you know, met or talked to maybe, you know, a few hundred investors a year while I was doing that. So, you know, let's say I spoke to, you know, maybe, you know, three, 400 investors over the period, different investors. Um, and in, in late 2011, we, we went with my former boss there to, to meet an investor in the UK. And um, I won't mention his name because he's super under the radar. And, you know, uh, but, you know, he manages a very concentrated portfolio, very low turnover, like very selective, like sort of one idea every two, three years. Um, his track record is unbelievable. Uh, and, and, um, and I came, you know, we went to the meeting and he was so different from any other investor that I'd ever met. It was just like, he was playing a different game. Um, he knew the companies much better than, than anybody I'd met and even than me. So I was sort of like, wow, I cover these companies full time. I spent all my time thinking about three or four companies and he knew them better, not only from a number standpoint, but from a management standpoint, from a strategic standpoint, just it was it was his way of thinking was was just uh, crystal clear and uh, and very forward looking and, and atypical and um yeah he just struck me as very different and so I, I I wrote him an email afterwards saying that I really appreciated the meeting and and uh, and you know asking him if we could you know have a call to discuss his approach and he said yes and so we spoke on the phone and. Um, 
yeah, I, uh, he, he, the recommendations he made sh shifted my approach quite a bit. Um, you know, he, he, his, his background was very atypical in the sense that he was a journalist. That's how he started his career. And his role was working for a publication in the U.S. was to basically go out and look for, um, look in an industry, find a company that's, that's abnormally profitable and explain why. And that, that was sort of the story that he had to cover in each time. And I mean, what an interesting way to, to learn about business. And so, you know, he suggested that I read every history book, every history book on businesses that I could find. Um, he suggested that I contrast business models. So he would say sort of compare Intercontinental Hotels to other hotel operators, compare Coca-Cola to AB InBev. Um, and he gave me a host of other examples. And what I ended up learning is, you know, while these businesses might seem similar, on the surface, you know, same. He, I, I, he mentioned Costco versus Walmart, like, and and essentially, they're all businesses that on the surface seem similar, but there's underlying differences in their business model that lead to very different cash flow dynamics. Um, and so that was a big sort of shift in how how you know I, I sort of looked at things. And then the other thing is how we bought things, and he never. It seemed like he would buy things at a moment. You know, the timing was also always atypically good, and and and. You know, he didn't explain this to me in, in, in his own words. He sort of just said, just look at it and try to, you know, figure it out. And what I ended up figuring out is that he, again, focused on change and, and he would buy, you know, into things, you know, that were launching a new significant product or having a, a significant regional expansion or transitioning their business model. I mean, he didn't own this, but a typical example that, that I own for and I, I, I actually, you know, um, sold it maybe six months ago, but I owned it for, you know, six, seven years is Microsoft. And then and the transition in their business model is, is a good example. And, and he owned a host of, of, of examples like that. And, and, um, and yeah, th that was really, a, I think, a formative experience and, and changed how I, uh, how I approach things in multiple ways. And maybe I think a much better business analyst in, in the, the way that I think about things. And Eric, you know, as we close out here, you know, what, what advice would you have for new investors? Sure. I think that um, an important thing is sort of, you know, what's historically been been valued in finance is sort of, you know, skepticism and contrarianism and numeracy and, and quantitative orientation. And I think that's sort of why so many people, you know, take the CFA and get MBAs. And, and I think there's nothing wrong with either of those. I mean, I have an MBA. It's, it's not a problem. But I think that markets are becoming increasingly competitive and there, there, there's more and more of CFAs and MBAs and, and, and People think in similar ways and have read the same books and learned the same techniques and and many more using screens. There's many more quant funds and you know I, I think at this point those are sort of table stakes and and, and it's quite similar to poker. I mean I, I don't know if you play poker but I I've played poker for over 20 years and you know I remember initially you know in, in 2000 2001 2002 before the real boom you know people you know hadn't studied the game. There, there, there weren't that many books. There weren't any forums. There weren't online videos. There weren't training courses. There weren't poker trackers. The games were easier to beat. And then over time, they became much harder to beat because people all did the same things. And I think investing is similar. And so I would say that focus on, on being more creative and imaginative in your thinking than on being quant oriented. I, I don't think that that's a differentiator anymore. And I think that the people that will be the most valuable in 10, 15 years are people that 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 are creative thinkers and, and, and that approach things differently. So I think that that's something to strive for. The other thing I would say is, is to stay away from ideology. 
and 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 I, I understand that you know value investing it, it it's and most people when they speak about value investing they're speaking about value as a factor so sort of low price to book low PE whatever the case is I would say just stay away from that and the same thing with growth investing I mean I think that at the end of the day what you should be looking for is is to buy you know a, a company a, a quality business that's mispriced and I think that'll work irrespective of, of cycle and environment and I hope I've explained the nuances of what I mean by quality and what I mean by mispriced but um, yeah I'd say try to be pragmatic and 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 I know it feels better to go into a group and say I'm a diehard value investor or I'm a diehard growth investor but I I, uh, I think that it creates bias and so I would try to stay away from from that um, and then uh, you know I think that Another thing that's super important is to un- to basically understand that you have to develop your own approach, and that, and that means like it's great to to follow different investors and, and to experiment with things, but try and understand that you need to take a- pieces from different you know investors and aspects and blend them into your own, uh, or else you can't borrow conviction. So if you're if you're following someone else's approach and you're you're really just mimicking it, I I, I think it, it's it's very tough to perform well over the medium long term. And then maybe the last thing is to learn how to judge expectations of other people. And by that I mean that when you're starting out, at least when I was starting out, um, you know, I would get a view and I would focus so much on my view and, and what my view was about that I wouldn't realize at the end of the process that maybe my view is the same as everybody else's view or very similar and that therefore it had limited value. And, and um, so, you know, understanding like once you, once you have a view to say, okay, what does everybody think? And, and that can come from speaking to loads of buy side investors, reading loads of sell side reports, whatever the, you, you, however you want to approach that, but try to get a sense of, you know, what other people are thinking because our, our job really is to take advantage of gaps between fundamentals and expectations. And, and you can't do that if you don't know how to think about expectations and about how other people are, are viewing a stock. So that's another thing I, w- I would say. And then the final thing is just to read a lot and be curious and, and, uh, and, you know, like read all the books you can read, uh, you know, the Graham and Don investment newsletters, read, you know, blogs and forums on one side, and that'll help you with the theory. And then, you know, this sounds obvious, but, you know, read loads of 10 Ks and annual reports and investor presentations. And that's how you start to pick up patterns. And it's the same in music, really. I mean, like you can't become a good player if you don't listen to loads of music and, and um, your ear starts to get accustomed to things. Um, and uh, I, I think the same is true in, in, in investing and in business. Dude, well, listen, I, I, I got the title of this episode already. Lock, stock, and well, it's lock, stock, bro. That's Meredith's uh, Twitter handle. But uh, focus on being more creative and imaginative with your investing process. I think, uh, I think that's a great place to end it right there. You know, and uh, I got my title, so we're good. Um, you know, look, Eric. <laughs> with, with that, where, where can my audience go find more information to find uh, all of your insights, to follow you, and to uh, hear everything that you have to say or read everything you have to say. Really? Yeah, really. It's just on Twitter. I mean, I, I like, I don't, I don't uh, post that often. It's sort of like my investing. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I post a couple of times a month and, uh, and I'm happy to exchange with people and, and, uh, you know, get, get pushback and debate on ideas. So uh, that's probably the best place. Very cool. Well, with that, Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an awesome episode, great conversation, and I, I'm really excited to uh, have our next one. Thanks. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Have a good weekend. See you.
You too. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.